Hi, I'm Marty. And I'm Lizzie. Welcome to Sex and Consent, a feminist podcast about sex, consent and tackling patriarchy with your friends. In this episode, we're going to explore how sexual violence interacts with the criminal justice system and how it fails victim survivors from reporting through to conviction or the lack thereof. The extent to which misogyny, rape culture and rape apology is embedded into the criminal justice system is such that we can hardly call it a justice system. And that's why sexual assault trials are often called the second rape. And on that note, we want to give a strong content warning. This episode deals a lot with sexual assault and the harmful ways victim survivors are impacted by the system. We explicitly use the term rape throughout this episode. Thanks for that, Marty. Okay, we'll see you in there. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, Maris. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm good. I actually just went through our notes before and changed all the times you'd written Maris to Marty. <laughs> you what? <laughs> While you were away. <laughs> Marty. Can't, oh my I can't God. stop when it comes out naturally, though, can I? Oh, my God. That's so funny. It's like, um, you know, on Anchorman and they're like, don't change the teleprompter because he will read. And that's exactly. like me. I'm like, Maris. <laughs> Marty. <laughs> it's a crime. Um, oh. Anyway, um, hi, Dr. Marty Wilson. Hello. How are you today, Liz? I am going to be honest. I have a cracking period headache, um, i.e. a hormonal headache. But that's just that's just part of um, that's just part of my life, really, and part <laughs> of having your period. And mm. that's definitely dominating my day today. But I'm. I'm, I'm really confident that I'm going to pull through this episode and yeah. Well, that's really shitty and I sympathise with you given Thank all you. of my period ailments that I get constantly. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm also confident that you're going to be able to pull through and get a hit of adrenaline for this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm funnelling all of my energy from today into this and then I am going to moss out. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> So before we begin, as we always do, we can do an acknowledgement of country. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I am on the land of the Widgibal Wyable people of the Bundjalung Nation. And that's, as I've said before, it's where I live and work and where I also grew up. And yeah, I just want to honour, um, I think I said this in the last episode, it was some words that I picked up from somebody that I had the honour of being educated by recently and he he's an aboriginal man who used the kind of language that his his acknowledgement contained language that was like that aboriginal people had been living in harmony and cohesiveness Mm. for you know thousands of years before colonization and i really loved the way that he put that um yeah just like acknowledging that the harmonious, um, no, not only harmonious living with each other, but with the land yeah. uh, and the way that w- what was, you know, only what was needed was taken, for example, um, in the way of like food and, and resources and just, yeah, acknowledging the the way that that benefited people and earth mm. and that type of, you know, mentality or that spirit is still really strong within know aboriginal people's culture and community today and i really uh respect and admire that ethos thank you maris um i love i love that acknowledgement and i um think it's really cool when you learn about um the history culture the way of living on you know in the area where you live 
And it's just that such a solid reminder that um, First Nations peoples have been here for thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of years. And colonisation was such a dramatic disruptor to to the ways mm. that um, First Nations peoples have lived. Um, on that note, I'm um, recording today on the land of the Gumbangi people, um, which is where I sort of live sometimes, sort of work sometimes, but um, it's where I grew up. Mm. And I went for a surf at Arawara this morning and, um, you know, only in recent years have I learned that Arawara means meeting place. I think you've talked about that in, in another episode, Maris, and... Um, yeah, just what a beautiful place to meet. And I know I, I can just, I guess, imagine um, the role that Arawara had um, with its geographical location and the ocean being there and then the sort of creek system as well. Um, and I think you mentioned this one time that there was a lot of um, oysters or fish, like plentiful food mm. in this area. Yeah, um, I think the the Gumbangi people were called the sharing people because of how yes, abundant um, yes, food that's was right. in, in that area. Yes, like so much food to be sharing yeah. and, yeah, which is just awesome. Mm. But, um, yeah, just um, offering my deepest respects to um, Gumbangi people and to all First Nations peoples um, on this beautiful continent. Okay, so today's episode, we're going to be looking at the relationship between the criminal justice system and sexual violence. In particular, we're going to be looking at the way that the criminal justice system responds to sexual violence or doesn't respond um, and kind of busting some myths around, you know, what actually happens when someone goes to the police or gets to the point of court and trials. Now, this is often something that's been referred to by other researchers or activists or just people in general as the second rape, and that's because of the way sexism and misogyny and other prejudices are built into, well, all of our institutions, but, yeah, the legal system. So we're going to be um, basically just looking at that concept of the second rape or using that concept of the second rape to critique the criminal justice system and how it responds to sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And also, just before we get into it, some listeners might remember a few years back there was a prominent case in the US, um, often referred to as like the Stanford sexual assault case. And it was a guy, Brock Turner, who went to Stanford, who assaulted a young woman called Chanel Miller. Now, mm-hmm. it was quite prominent because of the way it happened. She was unconscious. It was witnesses saw it and um, Brock mm-hmm. ran away. And then this, you know, mammoth rape trial ensued and ultimately he was given a very minimal sentence and it was just a really disappointing result um Mm. anyway chanel miller she wrote a book called know my name uh which outlines her entire experience and has there's a lot of in her book that centralizes around her experience with the criminal justice system so we thought that was quite relevant Mm. um to, to, you know, use as an example throughout this episode. Yeah. And the other thing I just wanted to mention before we get into it is that, you know, we obviously are going to be talking about the criminal justice system and, and we'll be talking about, you know, like consequences and punishment and things like that. But it doesn't mean that we, you know, admire or are overall advocates for the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that because it's the mainstream system that we are kind of more or less forced to deal with um Mm -hmm. if people are looking for any sort of formal process um 
it does become a part of discussion about sexual violence um, because people don't really know where else to look or have other options for justice in a lot of instances. Mm. So, so the criminal, criminal justice system becomes, um, you know, it's super intertwined with sexual violence and, and that's even though that the criminal justice system can harm everybody involved. Absolutely. It's like uh, kind of just working with what what we've got. Of course, um, and Maris knows a lot about this, not that this is um, necessarily a central topic to this episode, but, you know, there is a sort of new um, school, uh, you might call it, of, of justice around sexual assault called restorative justice, mm-hmm. which is obviously a really, a really positive alternative that um, seems to be getting more funding and a bit more attention these days. Um, but, yeah, the focus of this episode is really what happens when a victim survivor enters the mm. criminal justice process and yeah just want to second that that we're not saying great Mm. awesome that people get to to go through this including the like you know our philosophy is that it's actually not geared for even the perpetrator of sexual violence to properly reckon with what they've done Mm -hmm. um and and to heal and and to never do it again yeah basically it's just it's the system that we're working with and so we're going to critique that or we're going to talk about the experience of that in this episode totally so i want to front end um the first section of this episode if you will by returning to uh something that we discussed in the consent and coercion 101 series maris listeners who have been have been back to that series will remember that we talked about these things called rape myths now this is sort of like a a a tool or a tactic or an element of rape culture at large but basically rape myths um which are yeah, they're just myths that are generally perpetuated by a patriarchal society that are designed to generate doubt around the reality of um, sexual violence. So like how widespread it is, how pervasive, how how serious it is as well. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, why are there rape myths? <clears throat> Basically, it's like the more you cast doubt over something, the more you diminish it, mm-hmm. the more you make it not a big problem, right? Mm. So the more the more you diminish anything, the greater excuse you have not to do something about it. So, you know, the attitude would be like, oh, well, if something's not really a problem, then I don't really have to do anything about mm-hmm. it. So, like, keep, keep that in mind, right? So rape myths, therefore, are operating to excuse people, particularly straight cis men who are overwhelmingly the cohort perpetrating sexual mm. violence, it's, it's excusing them from doing any sort of work to address sexual violence. It's similar with racism when, like, you know, the likes of Pauline <laughs> fucking Hansen and, like, you know, Karens and characters like Sam Newman. Mm. Is that his name? Sam Newman? The, the AFL, AFL guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, fucking Vol- Voldemort, let's never say his name <laughs> on this podcast again. Like, all of those people are out there like denying the reality of racism and by doing that they're excusing themselves and other people from addressing it right so why am i mentioning all of this basically there's a lot of denial out there around the reality of sexual violence and that's because what i'm saying here is because of the rape myths right so Mm. it's either indirect like oh i've 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 never really heard about that i didn't know that that happens Mm -hmm. Or there's like flat out denial, which is like that 
that isn't how it is. That isn't true. Mm-hmm. Not that mm-hmm. we- not that many women are raped. Not that many blah 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 blah. Not all men, mm. right? Mm. And um, we've I feel like we've mentioned a particular ex boyfriend of mine, mm. Maris, a few times on this um, podcast, but. Um, he definitely falls into the latter category, right? Mm -hmm. Like just flat out denial. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Then there's also this belief, which which is really a part of this episode as well, that people who enact rape, people who rape others are punished. Mm -hmm. That's actually not... That's also a bit of a myth mm-hmm. um, because – or rather it's a misconception mm. that basically mm. if you rape, you will be punished. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do now is go through what I keep referring to in my head as like a, a story of stats, mm-hmm. a stat story <laughs> that we we want to share here for listeners to um, to be able to use in your conversations with people who either a don't know much about the reality of sexual violence or who are um, flat out denying it right so Mm -hmm. you may not remember these like this stat for stat right but this is a narrative that um, that Maris is about to outline that we hope is really useful and and convincing for you to um, to use I guess in your conversations with people about sexual violence okay so the stats now these are contextualized within an Australian context, mm-hmm. just FYI. The first stat I wanted to deliver is that one in six women in Australia over the age of 15, so I guess women and girls over the age of 15, have been sexually assaulted mm. in their lifetime. Now, that's already really high numbers, but like word on the street is that these are a really um, conservative estimate mm-hmm. as well because, you know, I know a lot of women and pretty much every single one of them has a story that would constitute sexual assault and it's certainly not just one in six. But let's just roll with the one in six that we know is a definite mm-hmm. within the bounds of, like, I guess, legally defined sexual assault. And then mm. let's just turn the lens over to the criminal justice response and look at the stats relating to that. So over 90% of sexual assault is not reported to the police. So over 90%. That means, you know, over nine people out of 10, which isn't even, that's like a third of a person, (laughs) three quarters of a person. Um, um, And like, so, you know, easier to think of is like, more than 90 out of 100 people who are raped don't go and seek any sort of formal criminal justice process. Um, And again, this is considered to be like conservative. Mm. So of those that are reported, only 32% proceed to some legal action, some sort of legal action. Wow. So that's basically like to picture it as well. You've got 100 people, only 10 have um, reported. Mm -hmm. And now we've only got three people who've proceeded on to legal action. Yeah, that's right. So about two or three people out of 100 that would result in some sort of legal action, like a charge or further than that. Okay. Now, if we flip this around, so out of one, like let's say you've got 100 people um, to make up like 100%, (laughs) um, 100 people who rape, Mm -hmm. um, over 90% of those people do it without any sort of formal consequence. Mm. Now, that means that over 90% of people who rape just 
fly under the radar automatically, basically. Mm. And I mean, of course, there'd be exceptions to this. It may like, you know, weigh on their conscience or maybe the victim might tell people they mutually know and maybe there's a bit of a loss of social or familial connection or something, but that those mm-hmm. are rare cases. Mm-hmm. Now, 97% of rapes reported to police, the perpetrators are men, regardless of the gender of the person who they rape. So whether that's the victim's a man or woman or a gender non-binary person, the person who rapes anyone is 97% likely to be a man. So just putting that in there as well, because when I'm talking about like these 90% of people who rape or, you know, all of this, like we are very largely talking about men. Mm. So back to the, the stats of the approximate 7% of men who rape, who are reported to the police, only 32% of those men, one third of that 7% result in a charge. So that's the setting. Mm-hmm. If we had 100 men who raped people lining up in front of us, and of them, only 7% that have been reported step forward, they're in like the spotlight. Those other 93 kind of like fade into the darkness. Mm. Um, and then of those seven who we can still, still see, the police deem that about 2, 2.5 of them are possible for going forward into, into a court setting and worth following up. So those two step forward. So those remaining five then disappear back into the dark with the rest of the 93 So of those last two, the two who the police believe they can take some legal action on, Mm. that's two out of 100 that could possibly result in in a conviction. Now, to the the court setting, about 70% of rapes that wind up in court result in a conviction. But a lot of this is due to pleading guilty, so a guilty plea. Mm. So, you know, you've got the 70% that might be found guilty, but that's because the evidence is too damning or they're doing a plea because that might reduce their sentence or like whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Of those who do not plead guilty, when it actually does go to trial, the conviction rate is only 50%. Now, this is comparatively lower than the rate of conviction for other non-sexual criminal offending. So for general criminal offending that is not sexualized, the rate is more like 70% convictions from trial. Okay. And this is important, particularly for later when we talk about like people's experience in the courtroom, like victim survivors experience in the courtroom and like juries and the role that they play Mm. and like kind of conceptions or like um, stereotypes around victims and then like who's actually deciding on whether that perpetrator did it or not. Mm -hmm. So we go back to our two men who have stepped forward and like they're all the rest are, you know, back kind of more invisible to us um, in this criminal justice setting. So they're at a point of experiencing some form of consequence. Let's say one pleads guilty because that would kind of fit with the stats. The other pleads not guilty. Now, that means out of, we've got, out of our 100, we've got one guilty, like convicted person who pled guilty. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility of this second guy. And let's say that the reason that he hasn't pled guilty is because he has sociocultural privilege, like he's from a family that has money, they can hire defense barristers etc and let's say he's white and the narratives around rape culture and who commits rape are in his favor mm-hmm. so because of the stereotypes that we have about like rape and rapists if someone has sociocultural status like particularly if they are someone that is like you know like a football star or if they just yet yeah, come from like what we would hear called like a good family um that type of thing there's going to be more likelihood that they're going to be considered believable or uh, that we're going to look to the victim and think that she's lying rather than think that he's a rapist. Yeah. Like Chanel Miller with Brock Turner, like he's going to Stanford, his family are rich, he's white, 
And and so his he, he and his family or he and his legal team think he's got a good shot to fight this case and that because of our, you know, racist, sexist system that he actually has a chance of getting off um, and might be looked at favourably. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got character references from people saying that he would never do something like this. Mm. He's got, you know, an expensive, yeah, expensive legal team that casts her as irresponsible. You know, she was drunk or she let him on or whatever and paints a picture in which non-consent, in which her non-consent, like her refusals were not clear. Yeah. Basically. So even though she is standing there saying that she didn't want it and that she said no or that she was passed out or she was asleep or too drunk, so how could she possibly give consent or that she was frozen, silent, non-reciprocating? The jury, made up of mostly men because the defence eliminated as many women as possible, deliberate and they come back and they pass their verdict, not guilty. So that jury, they've related to him. They've empathised with him. So of our 100 men who have raped... We have one who was found guilty and one then who experienced some formal consequence, but who ultimately was told that what he did wasn't rape or even wasn't wrong. Mm. That he kind of made, made a, a mistake that anyone could make. Mm-hmm. He just, it was a miscommunication or it was like he misread the situation, but it wasn't wrong. He didn't maliciously do that. He didn't purposely do that. That's basically what he's told by that not guilty verdict. Okay, so then if, if we think about the victim survivors again of the 100 people that have been assaulted 98 received no formal justice one did receive formal justice and then one who yeah was really brave and courageous and went through that trial process was ultimately told that she wasn't believed so she had to relive one of the worst or possibly the worst experiences of her life in a courtroom full of people including the person who who raped her and she was not validated by that experience she was in one way or another positioned to be a liar or an unreliable teller of her experience Mm. and that this jury of other humans believe him over her and so this is why it's called the second rape she is basically just traumatized all over again wow the situation is so dire and i just like even you know as you were saying that last bit to go through what you've gone through and then sit in not just the courtroom once or twice, but like go over months, if not years, years, this criminal justice process um, in cases of sexual assault often. And then to be basically told by um, a group Mm. of people who don't know you that, um, yeah, you're not to be believed. And then the and then the media mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so then the public then is like oh okay well he got off therefore he didn't do it therefore she is a bit of a liar i i just feel sick <clears throat> thinking about that as an experience and why i'm saying this right now is because i just want to i guess hone in on the word survivor mm. like why mm. we say victim survivor um because it takes a lot of courage to report and enter this journey mm-hmm. i want to say that even for people who don't it doesn't mean for, for people who don't go to the police and start this journey that does not mean that they're not courageous that doesn't mean that they they don't mm-hmm. have bravery that, that's just a choice for them um but the people who who did step up and then and and survive this process right mm-hmm. um that's that's what it's about um i guess for me, that's really the meaning I take from mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up that point about like, and you know, people that don't go to the police aren't not brave or like not courageous. And it's interesting. Like, I certainly didn't go to the police um, 
at mm. the times where maybe I could have. And that's also from knowing this as well. Like mm-hmm. the understanding, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, because we know what may lie ahead. There's a real reluctance to put yourself through that. Yeah. And, and like, you know, in the book that we're going to kind of talk a little bit about Chanel Miller, um, you know, for oh. her, it did. It was years yeah. and she couldn't work. She was, she had total like breakdown of all, you know, her different parts of her life because of the, 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 what, the, what the trial kind of took from her, like all the space Absolutely. that it took up in her life. Absolutely. And Brie Lee talks about this as well. I mean, mm. a, lot of, a lot of advocates and authors do. Um, mm. We also want to sort of indirectly acknowledge them as mm. well. Um, but they're, these are both books, um, rather, both of these books, Chanel Miller's and Brie Lee's, we have read um, quite recently. Yeah. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I mentioned as well how there's a lower conviction rate for sexual offenders than non-sexual offenders. Mm. As in like, so like there's a lower conviction rate for people who've committed a sexual crime than say like a robbery or um, assault on the street. Yes. I guess I just wanted to like touch on that again, because it, it, it's kind of just like evidence of the rape culture and the rape myths that you talked about at the start. Um, But, but also like bigger than that, like the patriarchal system um, and the way that the criminal justice system was designed within you know within the patriarchy but also back at a time where women weren't involved in that process um Mm. you know the the criminal justice system was essentially created by men and for men which is what we've talked about um in a previous episode and Mm. you know patriarchy tagline (laughs) yeah the patriarchy tagline and it's like that male dominated male centric system and so like you know that means a lot of the judiciary and like you know like the magistrates or judges and people like that I mean police officers often are men so you you're already passing almost through these like checkpoints from the very beginning where it's like you've got to prove to a man who may have like those deeply embedded rape myths and rape culture narratives you know Mm. within his own mind that you deserve to get past that checkpoint to like the next phase yeah so I just wanted to kind of like you know and then and then and then of course there's the jury like who are often you know oh. in a sexual assault case a lot of the time it's it's largely men because any they ask women have you been sexually assaulted or they ask the jury have you been sexually assaulted and if women have been they're kind of supposed to say yes and so then they'll be eliminated which i can i just make a point on that what the fuck what the like, fuck what the fuck it's like why do they put people on the jury well, I mean, I know why they don't put people on the jury with lived experience, oh. but I'm like, how is it's that so happening? Cooked. Sorry, because it's like when you've got like, oh, time and time again, all white juries oh, in cases totally. of racial violence. What the fuck? Who do we call? Who do we call? And make who a complaint do we call? about that? But like that, that's so That's wrong. what's happened with Zachary Rolfe, right? Exactly. That's exactly what's happened with Zachary fucking Rolfe is um yeah his trial was an all-white jury and so sick for listeners <laughs> like zachary rolf is a police officer who shot dead aboriginal man kumanjai walker and was found by the high court of australia not guilty earlier this year if listeners want to um, learn about that story i mean there's a lot of podcasts about it there's a lot of articles mm-hmm. as well Kumanjai's coronial inquest is on right now and it's going for about three months mm-hmm. so I basically have just gone to my google alerts and put in like Kumanjai Walker as a google alert mm. and it means that you're always getting the coronial inquest updates mm-hmm. into your inbox and um obviously this is outside of the scope of this podcast but um 
super, super important story mm-hmm. and so much like acknowledgement and respect and love and major condolences mm. for the um, for the family of Kumanjai Walker, mm. for his community and um, the community of Yundamu. Um, hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, anyway, we just implore listeners, please go over and, and follow what's what's going on there. But mm. very similar concept, right, where you've got people in mm-hmm. the jewellery who are, like, frankly, um, <laughs> probably going to be a bit biased. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. In that case, um, you know, biased race, racially. Um, and then likewise in, in rape cases when we've got juries made up of men and it's a, and a, it's a woman victim or even if it's a man victim. Like, a, like you know, there's... Absolutely, because there's a whole range of fucking totally. stereotypes going on there as well. Yeah. So to summarise, like given the small amount of people, small amount of people who feel emboldened enough to report, we can assume that the assaults trend more towards the more like explicit or like cut and dry rapes. What like we've talked about in previous episodes is often called like real rape in the eyes of the public. Um, Mm. And then a lot of the people who wouldn't come forward and report, like they'd have those experiences as well, but then there'd be like a really large amount of people who experience um, rape in a way that's maybe like, you know, we know that it's easier to cast doubt upon. Like, you know, you weren't walking through the street and a stranger attacked you. You were, like, at a party where you were drinking, you know, whatever it might be. So, like, or, like, you know, the the, the perpetrator used verbal coercion, psychological pressure, um, whatever, to override your refusals rather than, say, like, physical violence. Physical violence, exactly, that left a mark that then would be considered. (laughs) Totally. And so, like, it kind of becomes apparent when you look at all these stats, what I've just gone through, um, that only certain types of rape and only a certain type of rapist and only certain types of victims are likely to reach a point of prosecution. Which is just crazy. And I really like the way that, um, I like the example you used um, for this section, Maris, where it's like you can actually imagine in your mind and maybe use this, listeners, when you're talking about um, this stat story, Mm. is like you just, like you can imagine 100 people Mm. And the and the power of ninety stepping back mm. is is actually pretty huge, mm-hmm. and then that you end up with one or two people out of that hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, I think that helps to conceptualise that these stories, you know, sexual assault is happening to people, mm-hmm. and um, and it just helps to I think um, analogise or um, um, yeah, paint a picture of of what we're talking about. These stats, right? Yeah. So, at this point, it's obviously fair to say that um, a minority of people, uh, like an extreme minority of people, are getting even this far um, mm-hmm. into the criminal justice system or that journey. So, the reality is already very dire. In any case, the survivor has got this far, mm-hmm. right? Which, yeah, incredible courage and, and effort and should be acknowledged and admired in every single case, mm-hmm. really. And that doesn't matter gender anybody who mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. comes this far but then it's almost like in a way this is where um a whole new world of problems mm. begins right at least within the system mm. what we're going to talk about now is you know as maris has mentioned um the phenomenon or the concept of the second rape and so just to drive that home again it's a term to describe the re-traumatisation of the victim survivor by the criminal justice system when they're trying to, at the end of the day, seek justice for what was done to them. 
and what was taken from them. Um, and yet they're the ones really going through that, mm-hmm. that re-traumatisation. So, um, yeah, again, for this, for this uh, section, definitely we're going to be discussing some heavy themes, sexual violence, um, rape again. Mm-hmm. Um, so just keep that in mind. So, Maris, let's dive into it. Um, we want to lead this, this section, this part of the podcast um, about the second rape. We're going to lead that with a concept called the perfect victim. And um, basically that's a way that different victim survivors' identity factors are drawn upon within the criminal justice system to either discredit them Mm. or, on the flip side, some victim survivors' identity factors um, even really privilege them um, over some other victims, Mm. right? So this this concept as we're going to talk about as well also impacts perpetrators Mm -hmm. so let's Mm -hmm. dive into it yes and something that just kind of came to mind is when i went and watched q a a couple of months ago and veronica gory was on the panel and and she spoke about um who's veronica gory so veronica is a gunai woman who authored a book called black and blue and it's about her experiences domestic of domestic violence okay on the panel she was talking about like there being like the right type of victim and that's this perfect victim mm-hmm. you know concept that we're talking about here and, and she was saying she was like the right or like the white victim yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i was like it's so freaking true like you know there's already with the different prejudices and discrimination in built into the minds of many people in society already uh there's mm. going to be biases and it's going to be less likely for people to even kind of get to that first stage of even walking into a police station like is that police station even safe for you have you mm. got any trust with the police um like what has your experiences been with the police through your life prior to that moment where the place that you're apparently meant to like seek help oh. So there's that level of it. And then there's like, if you do go to the police station, there's still the, well, what, what were you doing that night? Were you drunk? Were you, what was your behavior like? Like we, you know, whatever it might be. And then it's like, what's your history? Like, you know, are you, or like, what's your context? Like, are you in a a relationship? Like, are you a married woman who's like living this like life of purity or are you someone Mm. that do you sleep with people regularly? Like whatever, like there's going to be that kind of character building. um, Yes. Profiling. (laughs) Profiling. Exactly. Um, And then, and then the identity factors kind of come on, on top of that. And uh, this is a really interesting one. There was a study done that apparently, you know, people with like pretty privilege, people that are, you know, stereotypically yes. prettier, DV victims that have that pretty privilege are more likely to be taken seriously by police when coming in oh, for an AVO. Of course. And it's just like when you think about that, it's like, whoa, there's a whole nother, you know, layer of it. Oh, that's bad. Yes, exactly. And so from when you get into the police station, there's immediately like you know an assessment starts to be made as to whether it's going to be worth going ahead with a charge and yes it's based on what evidence might be available but also of course assumptions and prejudice and personal biases of the officers that like receive your complaint I suppose Mm -hmm. when you get into the station those personal biases and prejudice and all that certainly play a part in whether they take you seriously or not basically and whether it gets from you coming in and telling them what happened to actually resulting in an arrest or a charge Mm. and unfortunately stereotypes and assumptions about how a victim should act how a victim really like presents how upset a victim should be or how 
scared a victim should be or then then other things is like not just around like victim behavior but like assumptions that police officers might hold regarding race and class and um sexuality and all of those types of things play into this not only is there their personal biases and prejudice but they'll actually be thinking or assessing for like how will she look in court or how will this situation look in court and there's either an implicit or explicit Mm. understanding of like victim blame narratives here because and like that could be actually coming from their own narratives of victim blame that they actually believe in or because they understand the narrative so if she comes in and says I did this and I did this and I did this um things that, that they deem to be like leading him on or not being clear communication or something like that they might get to a point where they're like there's really just not enough here for us to go forward with this so basically like women or anyone who's sexually assaulted that attends a police station from the first moment that they're there are basically being deemed as to whether what type of victim they are and Mm -hmm. that's where this idea of like they're having to be a perfect victim or like veronica gory's idea of like the right victim or the white victim comes like it's it's actually just super prevalent um and it actually determines the response and thus the accountability or the um the care that you receive at that through that process Mm. and a couple of quotes from chanel miller's book um that kind of talk to this was when she was first speaking with the prosecutor that was going to be taking on her her trial she says they were asking her a lot of questions about how much she drinks how like you know how regularly how many drinks in this session what does she do when she's drunk like you know all of this and it's like she was like a what 21 year old or so mm. and it's yeah. like obviously we've most of us that have you know been in our early 20s and late teens have like binge drank and like haven't thought about like you would never think oh am I gonna later have to justify these actions this drinking yeah, yeah. It, in in a context that's actually nothing to do with this like she was raped by someone or assaulted by someone yet she's having to then justify even just to her own prosecutor prosecutor um team that like how much she drank and whatever and so she says i wanted her to see that i was normal that i drank sure but that i didn't like being penetrated while unconscious and mm. i just think this it so perfectly points to like that alcohol consumption is like so unrelated to then someone else raping that person. Like, you know, the only way it's related is that it, that people that rape exploit people that are drunk. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? That's like, literally <laughs> the only way that it's, it should be considered relevant totally. to anything. And it's also interesting because like drinking doesn't excuse rape but that's how it's treated it's almost like if the pers- the perpetrator was drunk it's a bit like oh but he was drunk he wasn't in control but then absolutely but then if the victim's drunk she's like asking for it so in both ways it plays negatively against the victim survivor it's uh, that that double standard is so fucking absurd mm. sorry i'm using the f word <laughs> a lot in this episode um but like okay when somebody is drunk and they hop in a car Mm -hmm. and they kill someone. Mm. That person Mm -hmm. is not going to be told or the defence is not going to be like, oh, they really didn't mean to kill Mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. They were drunk. It's like why in – this is like – this is almost like a a, a bigger discussion or like a Mm -hmm. whole other episode, right, but it's like the the Mm. particulars of – sex crimes Mm. of sex-based crimes Mm -hmm. right 
that have this whole other fucking standard. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, like, usually sex crimes happen in private. Yes, okay, so there's, like, a different set of evidence standards or whatever but it's like actually no the whole attitude mm -hmm. around sex crimes is like wildly different to mm -hmm. anything else mm -hmm. um and i i love that quote because it's like okay so blokes are literally getting off the hook mm -hmm. because they're drunk mm -hmm. but chicks are getting um let's say blamed blamed yeah. exactly labeled they're irresponsible a liar, for drinking and they're irresponsible mm. For drinking mm. the exact same amount, let's mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. the amount doesn't even fucking matter. It's like for doing the exact same thing. And you know yeah. what, Liz, when you just said uh, in the drink driving case, it's like not only would we not excuse someone for killing somebody while they're drink driving, we'd actually mm. look at them as even more irresponsible because yes. they got in the car drunk. And yes. so, like, it would, we actually, because it's like if someone hits someone and they're not drunk and it's like a total accident, you're, you're like, fuck, like, you know, yes, of that, course. Like, so, like, I mean, it's terrible. tragic for that person in any case. Like, they've obviously not meant to do it. But when they get in drunk, you're like, you know you shouldn't be driving a car, like, yes. kind of thing. And can I also just say that, like, I have been so maggot mm. in my life and I had, have never had the urge no. to, like, sexually violate someone or like push past someone's boundaries so it's like mm -hmm. it isn't just the alcohol guys it ain't um, just the alcohol that's a good <laughs> yeah anyway so where were we so the other quote from chanel's book that i wanted to put here as well in relation to this like victim character she she talks about this you know when she's getting questioned about her history her life everything her boyfriend to see whether she's going to make a credible victim for the stand as such and uh she says they were deciding whether I'd make a good victim. Is her character upstanding? Does she seem durable? Will the jury find her likable? Will she stay with us moving forward? I walked out feeling mm. like, you got the job. I did not want this job. I wanted my old life. But let him walk away, I could not let it happen. Mm. And so it's yeah. like, you know, she, she didn't even want to go through with that, you know, really. Like it was horrible. She knew the court process was going to be horrible, but it's like she didn't also want him to have no accountability. Exactly. It really frames that for me... Um, you know, throughout Chanel's book, but then also in discussing sexual violence and survivors coming forward and entering this ju criminal justice journey that we're talking about is like, wow, you really were so brave. Like, it, it just takes such courage. Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah, so you can see like, even from the beginning, um, there's this huge focus on the victim's behavior and what she was doing in in the hours leading up to being assaulted and then what she was doing um you know in the assault and then after the assault right mm. basically all of this is um trying to figure out like was she really raped or not mm. really instead of just looking at the fact that she's like i was raped and then being like to the person who did it like it's like hang on let's just like see can we pin any, pick any holes in her story like is exactly. there something this is yeah. like major filtering out mm. happening um mm -hmm. which yeah which obviously relates to that statistic before of the victim survivors who come forward and then the police say sorry there's not enough here mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. us to even go forward exactly so. right and yeah. so this only gets like more prominent and like sinister with the questions asked by the defense once in court Oh, yeah. And, like, this is really where, like, the term the second rate comes in because it's basically, like, 
you are questioned in a way that just casts doubt or like that challenges your experience of rape like and this is something for me where I'm like this is so wrong like it that yep. she's a witness right like the, the, she's a witness for the like once she's reported to the police and it's passed on to the prosecutor she's just a witness that is drawn upon and yeah. it's like yet her her witness testimony is treated completely unreliably um particularly you know particularly in like I know that can happen like you've got to you know there's obviously defense um questioning people in all these types of you know trials but in a sexual assault case it's just like I don't know to me it's like so unjust I'm like she's been raped she didn't just see someone rob a building and she's being a witness she's a witness of her own experience like that was violating her body anyway so what I wanted to kind of point to was just a couple of things that can happen in the, the trial so if she or they or he were drunk or asleep or unconscious or something where their memory might not be 100% accurate or that they're where they're, they've said, I can't remember, but I woke up and I know this was happening or like they don't remember how it kind of began, for example. Hmm. The perpetrator and his legal team, they've got more space to create what happened, to create yes. a, pic- a picture for the jury and for the yep. rest, rest of the courtroom. They could say, oh, she did say yes, actually. She doesn't remember it, but she told me she wanted this or that. Like then, you know, when she came to, she just freaked out. Um, Mm. Or they could say, oh, yeah, she was, you know, taking off her top or, you know, taking off her pants or she was grabbing my penis, like whatever they might say to be like, oh, things that made me think that she was consenting. Yeah. Even if she's like, I know there's no way I was doing that. Like I was, I'd been asleep or I was, yeah, I was drunk, but I would, you know, I was, that's just not who I am. That wouldn't have happened, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They can kind of create this, this story. And, and Chanel says something about this. She says like the night that he admitted to fingering me and denied running, like in his initial statement, like his initial interview had been recorded and he could not unsay those things. But since then he learned that I could not remember. Mm. And the prosecutor, Chanel's prosecutor said, he's going to rewrite the script. Which is just like, so, that is just truly sinister mm. because it's like, it's like this twisted loophole where the victim is clearly so incapacitated that she's not capable of giving consent, which really should mark, mm. it should signal to everybody. The guilt. Oh, well, <laughs> if she was, yeah, it's like that should signal to everybody. Well, oh, well, God damn, she can't remember. Like if she was so mm-hmm. like incapacitated that she can't remember things, it kind of sounds like she definitely wouldn't have been able to consent. Yeah. But then it's like this, why I say loophole, it, Honestly, defence barristers, whoever you are, mm. um, doing this work. I'm not saying that defence barristers, should, we do need defence. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that we don't. But it's like you fuckers out there who are defending the likes of Brock Turner mm-hmm. and leveraging these rape myths and mm-hmm. leveraging the patriarchy and leveraging rape, like rape culture, right? I'm just like, how do you sleep at night? Mm. But anyway, it's like these defense barristers must be like, yes, mm-hmm. she can't remember. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to rewrite mm-hmm. what she was doing. That's right. Because she, like, it's like she was so, let's say, um, blackout drunk or she was passed out, therefore she can't consent. But, like, 
that, it, what I'm trying to say is it's like it should have stopped there. But exactly. it's like, no, we can create something out of that. Totally. And they did bring in someone like an expert um, into Brooke and Chanel's, like into yes. the trial. They brought in an expert on like basically blackout Intoxication. Yeah, yes, like, and, exactly. and it was That's like right. to kind of try and, and I think Brock's team brought this person in. It was kind of to yes, try and say yes. that she could have seemed fine that could have been blackout drunk and that's why she couldn't remember um etc etc but like at the end of the day she was seen completely unconscious by the two people that were passing that saw what he was doing to her she was yeah the two witnesses like they saw her unconscious on the ground so like like even if she was conscious when they first when maybe brock led her outside or something like that the fact that then she's unconscious on the ground and he's continuing to do what he was doing to her yes like that's null and void like you know there's no there's no pretending that that's consensual like if someone passes out during that's also not fucking consensual like yeah yeah anyway the leg they give them to stand on i just cannot believe sometimes very strong hulk leg leg. (laughs) big strong green leg (laughs) so okay like what we've spoken about with um chanel even prior to the to the trial that they dissect the victim's history so they do this because they know that if she is like the innocent girl that's devotedly in love with her boyfriend and like it'll like obviously look better than if she was someone who has slept with a bunch of people and they know that the defense might say that she's like crying rape quote unquote because Mm. she cheated and felt guilty so like yes even with her own team assessing everything about her boyfriend like you know, how long have you been together? How often do you say I love you? Like, yeah. It's because they're, they've got to make sure that they're going to be able to challenge that in like a way that's watertight. Yes. Yep. And in Chanel Miller's book, she sums this up um, really well, like in relation to all of the irrelevant questions asked about her behaviour, you know, before or around the time of the assault. She says, the answer to all of these questions is that Brock Turner fingered me while I was unconscious. Mm. And I really love that because it's it's like saying, you know, all that matters here is that Brock, Brock Turner fingered me without my consent. Why am I having to answer all of these questions about how often I say I love you to my boyfriend or how often we see each other? Like, it's not relevant. It really doesn't make Brock's assault any less wrong or less traumatizing if she was planning to break up with her boyfriend or if she only sees him, you know, once a year or something like that. But she couldn't say that. Instead, she had to, like, specify, you know, all these details about her life that were kind of, like, seemingly unrelated. Um, so to, to, to prove that she wasn't the type of person who would go and sleep with Brock Turner while she was in a relationship with this other guy. Exactly. Yeah. Now, on top of that, victims of sexual assault, their witness testimony and any other evidence that they might have supplied when the police were seeking evidence to support the charge, that now becomes evidence for everyone and it's or evidence like as property Mm. of the court i suppose and it's not only the public prosecutor who gets to see that like the defense gets to see that so they they can draw upon it as well an example i'm going to use here is a victim's diary so let's say like she or they like most people after being assaulted don't report it immediately Mm. but instead they've gone home and written about the assault in their personal diary when then when the police ask for evidence they might ask if she told anyone about it or documented it yeah right and so she provides a diary in which she wrote about it let's say over a period of like weeks however that entire diary it could span a lot longer than those few weeks you know with all of like her personal thoughts and feelings that she's written down with no thought of anybody ever reading it let alone to try and disprove a sexual assault Mm. is now being dissected in in a courtroom so you can imagine like how invasive and how yeah how invasive and how intrusive and like 
how kind of like stripping that would be yes. for the, the person who like you know I wouldn't want anyone to read my journals just because it's embarrassing for starters but like mm. let alone you know in like in front of the person who sexually assaulted me and in a way where they're trying to you know attack my character it's just like a humiliating experience um and so then other examples of this are like social media and now i'm not 100 percent sure of the legalities and ethics of using people's social media as evidence um and it probably changes like state to state but let's say you have photos of yourself drunk and partying or like drunk with your arms around random other people like random guys or whatever kissing people which is all completely legal exactly um or let's say you've got po- your posts like your, your your status posts or whatever are dredged up from like 2012 like oh my goodness these could then be used like by the defense to create a story of who you are or like what your character is um and they may hope that they can make you out to be like this loose woman who would go home with anyone and then lie about it Mm. or at least be an imperfect enough victim so as to cast doubt in the mind of the jurors Mm -hmm. and then remember like things like the time in the states a couple of years ago where they held up the g-string that she was wearing apparently on the night oh, and saying that like, was in ireland oh in I ireland think. yes and it was like she was asking for it because you wouldn't be wearing this pair of underwear if you weren't if exactly that's a really i just want to acknowledge that case that was in ireland and um it kick-started a, a movement um that basically tragically and um content warning just going to mention suicide here but that victim survivor ended up taking her life because of what happened in court. Because, you know why? Uh, Like, because she was raped and then she had to go through the second rape. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, like, I guess, drilling down on that, um, Mm. the term of survivor, Mm -hmm. because to get through this kind of thing is just huge mm-hmm. and um yeah tragically she she killed herself so um yeah i mean you can look that up if if anybody would like to um the the story is just um yeah horrendous we'll leave it in the show notes mm. i want to say it's horrendous but i also want to say that the 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 movement and the mm. i guess the advocacy and the activism and the agitation that came from it was um obviously awesome but um yeah. Yeah, horrible. But, like, that shouldn't happen. Like, it shouldn't be like that. And that's the no. whole problem with this, exactly what we're talking about. Like, a defence attorney shouldn't be able to shame, demean, dehumanise, um, slut shame somebody yeah. so that they are – they're even worse off than what they were after Absolutely. having been raped to begin with. Like, that's what's so fucked up about this whole thing is, like, it's like the, le- the depths of – scumbag that these people that will you go, can to. go to exactly so anyway to summarize all of that i guess i just wanted to make it clear that solicitors or lawyers will yeah use a lot of unrelated things to try and like quote unquote prove consent yeah um, i'll just read a quick line from an article that i read recently in recent rape trials particular provocative and that's in quotation marks clothing fake tan and contraceptives have all been used as alleged proof of consent Oh. Oh, oh, what about the woman who was like traveling in Italy and there was like this is kind of off tangent vibes but like traveling in Italy there was a murder it was like she got framed for the murder oh. by the police that whole thing and she got like a Amanda, diary she, yes uh, the, yes Amanda someone yes and the diary from she was from America uh, from this USA and she, the, her her like teenage or college diaries got like exported back 
shifting over to Italy for the case and it had like names of boys she'd had sex with or whatever and they Mm. painted her out to be this like um, crazy like sex crazed like um like yeah like sex beast like and she had sex with like six guys or something and I'm like uh imagine like yeah I was thinking I was thinking about this like kind of concept before I'm like if I was getting questioned by police or whoever like how many people have you slept with I'd be like why the fuck does that matter like yeah like regardless of whether I've slept with two people or 200 I still deserve for it to be my choice like as does everyone so why the fuck would it matter Mm. So one final example I wanted to share is one in which a woman supplied her diary as evidence as she yeah, documented her experience of being raped by her husband during the marriage and she had tried to confront him many times about it so it was quite compelling evidence within the diary. Mm. But what then happened was the defence lawyer took other things from that diary that weren't specifically relating to the assault such as feelings that she had for someone else which of course makes total sense because she was in a marriage that was abusive in which he was using sexual violence toward her. So of course it would make sense that she feels, I guess, over that relationship or disenchanted with that relationship and perhaps has feelings for someone else. Mm. They used that to completely discredit the rape and it was as though they were saying, you made it up, you made it up as an excuse to leave him and you've staged this whole thing. Oh, my God. And it worked. And he got found not guilty. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. And it, and I just was like, I was, I was just completely gobsmacked by that because, you know, her assault, husband's assault to her, onto her was like wrong no matter whether she had a crush on someone else at the time or after or like whatever like he still has no right to assault her yet it was like suggested through the the argument of the barrister that discredited her and the jury believed that Mm, okay I just I'm like let's come back to juries for a second Mm. oftentimes I reflect on like why people do um, work in feminism, right? Why mm. people are trying to advance mm. um, education and myth busting mm-hmm. and doing all of this like community education work. Like, why do we do this podcast at the mm. end of the day? Like, uh, like unpaid. Mm. Like, I mean, we love it obviously, but it's like, why? Like, why? Mm-hmm. Why do we do it? I think yeah. about this often, and I'm like. Really what I hope to do and what people hope to do in the space of community educational consciousness raising is like obviously there's like the first benefit of people just, you know, not being sexist, people believing each other, people just being kind obviously. Mm. Um, But then it's also what I really hope for is like when you shift attitudes that it trickles down to the jury Mm. one day, right, Mm -hmm. where you then have jury members who don't have lived experience Mm. of sexual violence, right, but they understand what a rape myth is, Mm. they understand how they operate, they understand rape culture, Mm -hmm. and I don't even mean that they need to know those terms, but they Mm. that they get, like, actually know. Mm. Sexual violence happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And B, women don't lie about Mm -hmm. this. C, actually, that is something that a victim does. They do freeze. Mm. D, like Mm. all these things Mm -hmm. that we're trying to do with this podcast, right, is just like attitudinal and culture change Mm. that hopefully has an impact 
in in the justice system proceedings, right? Totally. And even a step further of like actually reassessing whether juries are the right uh-huh. like mode of assessment or whatever yeah. for this type of case when it is something that's like there is so much like sexism, misogyny and, and biases in society. Like why are we just getting lay people like you know, your oh, average like Joe. The layest like, of lay people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the layest of lay people. But also, like, there's, I completely acknowledge that there are people super invested in um, upholding justice. But then it's like, even if you're invested in upholding justice because prejudices and whatnot are built into society, there's actually more likelihood that they're built into the minds of people than, like, than, than they're not. So even when people are trying, trying to uphold justice they are still doing it within their framework and yeah if they're operating within like a framework that is not anti-racist or is not anti-sexist or whatever anti-misogynist then a likelihood is they're going to have biases that side with people in certain identities there's an argument for like professional jurors or like um Mm. you know skilled jurors that are say people like me that work in domestic violence or you know whatever like people that are in social work or people that are actually you know have some degree of understanding like what you were just saying that might be like oh I actually know that when people are feeling scared or traumatized that yeah they freeze or they go silent or you know whatever and people that understand consent laws for example like you know with our new with our new kind of like affirmative consent laws coming in it's like say there's people that actually understand that so then they can be on the jury and say well no actually when he like he didn't do anything to try and ascertain that there was consent he just steam trained forward like that person didn't even get to say yes or no at all yeah yeah exactly basically what ends up happening is that women say and this is like quite a widely stated thing is that we feel like we're on trial yes and it's not them that should feel that way. It's the, the defendant is on trial. Exactly. Oh, my fucking God. This isn't to say that defendants, like, shouldn't get a fair trial or whatever. But mm. it's, like, in the case of sexual violence, like, it's gone too far in the other direction. And, like, they're given too much benefit of the doubt or too much, like, mollycoddling of, like, oh, he didn't know. Too much. Way too much, like, innocent until proven guilty. Way too much of that, yeah. <laughs> like, even when you prove him guilty, he, he isn't guilty yet. He's still, yeah. he's still fucking innocent, you know. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, like, exactly, like, you know, oh, look what his life's been ruined now because all because she's lying about this. Like, you know, think about what happens in the media and, like, yeah. whatever after, even if he is found guilty in a lot of people's cases. But, yeah, basically because of patriarchy, rape culture, rape myths, and women being cast as, like, liars and vindictive, and there's that boys will be boys, and, like, consent or non-consent is, like, unclear or grey area. All of these things contribute to him getting let off the hook and it being the woman or the victim that is the one that feels like they're on trial and it's their behaviour that's getting really critiqued. Yeah, and that's just wrong. It is just wrong. Um, And, yeah, and, like, victims have, like, I don't know if you would know this or if if many people know this, but, like, victims have very little, almost, like, if any, control over the proceedings. Like, it's taken on by the state, so the Department of Public Prosecution. So, you know, she or he or they, they don't get to... Um, choose who their representation is whereas mm. like the person who did it can like you know hire an expensive barrister for example but oh, you're the person is the victim I didn't know that mm. so you just get given your prosecutor wow because it's like it's taken on by like the crown basically yes exactly and I knew that but I didn't know that you couldn't um you choose, choose. Your, I mean I yeah wow mm-hmm. and you're out. also not privy to the rest of the you're only there as a witness so in your witness testimony so you don't get to see the rest yeah. And you're getting discussed 
and everything's getting discussed, but you're not necessarily there or you're not there. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so it's just this, like, really kind of discombobulating thing. You're not allowed to talk about it with other, like, witnesses. So, yeah. like... A friend who, or, like, a family member, yeah. So, you, yeah, essentially to report with the hope of charging and a conviction is to relinquish control over how your sexual assault is dealt with in the court. Yeah, wow. Okay, so we have so much to talk about on this topic and we could yes. just like keep going deeper and deeper because this is almost just like, you know, we're just scraping the very the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but we just wanted to we wanted to give a bit of a, a glimpse, I suppose, into what is actually going on in the criminal justice system when people are reporting a sexual assault and the reality of the statistics and a reality of actually how many people who who uh, enact rape actually kind of get any yeah. formal punishment to kind of debunk what Lizzie was talking about at the start, this idea of like, oh, if someone rapes someone, they're going to get punished, which just isn't legitimately yeah. true. And also like, oh, and the cops are definitely going to come down on them like, you know, they're really going to treat them like yeah. they've done something wrong. It's like, mm, no, no, no. no. <laughs> 98 of those 100 men who raped people just stepped right back into the shadows Yeah, and went by invisible. And so, yeah, there's heaps of other things that we'd like to get through, but what we'll do is we'll pop it in another episode another time, and that's including yeah. the change in laws. So from the type of consent laws that we've had to now the transition over to more like affirmative consent um, legislation, yeah. which is happening in New South Wales and and other places yeah exactly and we'd also like you know I, th I think on this podcast we'll also do an episode at some point about restorative justice um, as an avenue or an alternative to the criminal justice process yes and just a little call out if you are someone who has gone through the restorative justice mm. um, process mm -hmm. um, and you would like to share your story please um, get in touch with us on our Instagram at sex and consent all one word yeah. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. Or well, you'll hear us next time. <laughs> yes, you'll hear us in the next episode. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Bye. Bye.